Hello, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of All Things Worship. I'm your host, Marty Reardon, and this episode begins a three-part series we're calling The Role of a Worship Leader. And in this episode, we're going to discuss three topics. The first is building trust with our communities, building trust in our congregations. The second is eliminating exits or distractions within our worship services. And the third and final one for today is service preparation. How do we prepare for our worship services? So let's dive in. Jesus tells us that the greatest among us must be servants. When we're leading worship, we are servants first and foremost. It's not about us. It's not about our own personal tastes. It's about what are we doing that can actually equip and encourage our congregation in corporate worship. And our personal tastes are important, but they have to take a backseat to worship leading. I tend to think of it in the analogy of a tour guide. Tour guides wear a uniform. Tour guides know the subject matter backwards and forwards. If you've ever been on a tour with a tour guide, you don't necessarily know all of the details about that tour guide's life. But you do know that they know what they're talking about when it comes to that museum or that tour. We're a bit like that. We need to know where we're going. We need to know where we're taking people. They need to trust us. They also know that we're not the focus of the subject. People don't go on tours because they want to find out information about the tour guide. They go on tours to find out about the tour. And so have your personality. You are who you are, so be yourself. Just don't be the focus of attention. And what I mean by that is no one... No one needs to know my full vocal range. No one needs to know that, you know, I can shred a killer solo. No one needs to know certain things about me that are just not actually helpful for this tour, this corporate worship tour we're taking people on. I'm not saying we become invisible as worship leaders. We're creatives. We long to be expressive, most of us anyway. And so express yourself, but bear in mind that tension and the temptation to stand out and be unique with the balance of serving. We just want to be aware of that when we're leading worship. So this first thing that I want to unpack is this idea of building trust within our communities, within our congregations. When you go on a tour and you see a tour guide, the uniform, it communicates, this person knows what they're doing. In the same way, we have to build trust and equity. We don't wear uniforms, but we have to figure out what does that look like within our communities, within our contexts. See, people will follow you when they trust you, when they believe you aren't going to do weird things to them or with them in a corporate worship setting. It reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote where uh, Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, not experiment on my rats. Now, a lot of times we might actually be experimenting on our congregations, which is not helpful. The reality is that if a congregation, if a group of people trust you, then they will follow you. They're going to be willing to go places that might even be uncomfortable for them whether that's lifting hands or singing out or whatever it might be in your context. And so one of the ways to build trust is to actually be known within your community. Stay in your community for a while. Will Willimon in his book, Preaching and Leading Worship, instructs leaders to not even think about implementing changes or doing things within their congregations until they've been in that congregation for at least a year. And I believe it's because Willimon knows that if we're going to take people places, They have to trust us. They have to know that we have their best interest at heart, that we're not doing things just for ourselves. I'm reminded of that passage in John 10 where Jesus says that he's the good shepherd and that the hired hands, when the wolf comes, will actually scatter. They leave. 
Well, we don't want to be like the hired hand. We want to be someone who is a part of a flock, who doesn't leave or flee when things get tough. We want to actually be one of the people. So being known, be in that community is a great first step at building trust. Also be consistent. And this is very practical. Be consistent in the sense of don't introduce a new song every other week. People have a hard time even learning the lyrics of the songs that we sing consistently. So don't make them feel, don't make the congregations feel like they're either a focus group or a lab rat for maybe a new song or new experimental ways of doing liturgies. That can be a distraction for people. And so people want to actually be led, but they need to have time to learn the rhythms, to learn the steps, to learn the words. So consistency within our leading gives our congregations confidence that we're not going to always be suddenly changing the rules on them, so to speak. And one of the things that I do is I actually, I never let new worship leaders introduce a new song their first go around. They actually need to be heard and seen singing the standards that my church sings, that my congregation is used to singing, because the new worship leader's voice and presence alone is going to be a change from the norm. And so I want to make sure that whenever I'm putting new worship leaders out there, that we're very consistent and how that's being received by the congregation. I don't want people thinking of my new worship leaders as, oh, that's so-and-so. They're always going to be introducing a new song. It seems like when they're up there, there's always something different. I want to avoid that because I want them to build trust as well within our community, within our congregation. And another thing is, do you know how to read your congregation? Do you as a worship leader know how to read a room? Are people following me or not? Am I getting blank stares or confused looks? Can I take cues from the congregation? Can I adjust accordingly in mid-set if need be? These are things that are going to help us be aware if we're building trust or actually trying to cash in equity, whether whether we're in the middle of a worship set or not. It's going to help us be aware of that. So how can I work on building trust within my congregation, within my leadership team even? Uh, And I try to list out those concrete steps of what does that look like within our context. So I would ask yourself those same questions. The second thing is this idea of eliminating distractions, or as my friend Andy Piercy says, eliminating exits. And think of a worship, a corporate worship experience as an interstate. And there's exits on an interstate where people exit. They're no longer traveling. And what we want to eliminate is those opportunities. We want people to stay on the road with us. And so we want to think, what are the distractions that cause people to disengage with worship? And as we talked about in previous podcasts, worship has to be participatory. It has to be something that our people are intentionally engaging with if it's going to properly form them. So every time I lead worship, there is always an opportunity for exits. And I need to be aware of that so that I can help continue to build that trust within my congregation that, hey, he's doing everything he can to take us along on the journey. And so some of the exits I'm going to talk about are going to be very uh, universal, and some are going to be very particular to me and my own personal taste. And so I'd submit these to you with all humility. Uh, The first exit might be obvious. It's, It's audible exits. Is the sound too loud? Is the sound too quiet? Is it poorly mixed? These are things that are going to cause people to stay in with what you're doing or to kind of check out. So give a lot of thought to your sound system. 
Give a lot of thought to your sound engineers and volunteers. Uh, you need to have a good relationship with them. And I would say as a worship leader, you need to have a very healthy working knowledge of sound systems. You don't have to know how to install one or how to even necessarily run sound, but I would say knowing how it all works is going to help you be a better worship leader. Uh, very recently, in the last few months, uh, we have actually switched over here on the west side to using in-ear monitors. And it was something that I, I fought against for a little bit. Um, because I personally love the club look. I love amps that are out on the stage. I don't want sound baffles. I don't want a drum shield. I don't mind cables and pedal boards. I, it, there's just kind of a grungy look that I actually enjoy about that. That dates me. I get it. I know. I'm old. But people who have no clue about music are coming up to me and asking if we got a new sound system because it sounds so good. And I'm thinking we switched inner monitors, and I hate this, but we put up a drum shield as well goes against everything within me as a musician. And yet what I'm finding is that we've had a great sound system. We did not change anything in our front of house, but the stage noise we had cluttered it up. So I had to actually die to my personal preferences of that club look of not having the drum shield, of not using inner monitors. And when I died to that, my own personal tastes in that, people are actually being blessed by it. They're wondering what happened to our sound. It sounds so great now. Well, we've had the same sound system. We didn't change any of that. So yikes, I didn't realize it, but I was creating an audible exit for people uh, by simply having a loud stage or amps on the stage uh, that I, I liked. Another thing would be um, with sound, uh, with wireless stuff. Man, we had wireless signals dropping for weeks there at one point, and I had to carve out several weeks to try to troubleshoot and fix the issue. And I much rather ha would have been practicing or songwriting or reading or engaging with people. Uh, but in order to eliminate that exit, I had to carve out space and even financial resources to fix that issue. And so fixing these exits is something that is going to require time and it requires a lot of back-end work. So that was one that I had to do uh, in the last six months, which was very frustrating, but we got it figured out. Another audible exit is going to be poor musicianship. So figure out what your standard is for you, your volunteer musicians, if you're using volunteers. And I would encourage you to read Tim Keller's Church and Size Culture article. I'm going to link it onto our website. In this article, he breaks down the reality that as churches grow— in numbers, their culture grows as well. And a simple example would be that a small church, let's say 50 people, maybe 100 people, they're going to know so-and-so who's playing drums. And if so-and-so is not a great drummer and messes up each week, there's a lot of grace for them because the church knows them. The church loves them. They've seen them grow up. They've seen them whatever. There's history there. There's a knowledge there. But as the church grows, if you get to 200 or 400 or 800 or 1,000 people, Far fewer people know those musicians on the stage, which means when there's mess-ups or they're not able to do something well, there's actually less grace for it. And so you have to find out where in our church size culture are we, and how does that affect the standard of musicianship and volunteerism here on the stage? Because you don't want your musicians to be a distraction. And I will say this, as just pastorally, your musicians don't want to be a distraction. Poor musicians themselves 
feel it. They know when they're not doing well, and it's actually a distraction for them. So it's, it's actually helping both the musician and the congregation when we can set and maintain a standard. Another thing with musicianship is work with what you have, meaning if you happen to have a violin and a mandolin and a cajon, and you're wanting to do Hill Songs, What a Beautiful Name, it's not going to sound like Hill Songs, What a Beautiful Name. It's going to sound like your version of that. And that's actually okay. So embrace your limits, embrace your margins with your musicians and your resources and their abilities so that you can actually create something that's going to be unique and beautiful and not be a distraction. Because when you try to tell maybe an accordion player to play maybe a, a song like that reckless love piano part, it's just going to sound different if they try to make it sound like the CD. So think about your musicians and how can we arrange these songs so that what people hear is not going to be a distraction. Another audible distraction is inarticulate speech. And this is important for us worship leaders because a lot of us have been put on the stage early on because of singing ability, not because of speaking or articulation. And so how are you with speaking? Uh, a lot of musicians talk louder than their singing voice, and a lot of them talk quieter than their singing voice. And so learn how to give instructions, learn how to talk into the mic. What is speaking mic etiquette compared to singing mic etiquette? How do you talk to your congregation in your worship services? So practice, practice, practice. Learn how to read scripture aloud. Learn how to lead a responsive prayer aloud. Learn how to give instructions out loud. So if you're singing a chorus and you're wanting to double that chorus and you know, what a beautiful name it is. And then you get, you're like, what? Like people aren't going to hear you say, let's repeat that chorus. So you have to make sure that when you're giving verbal instructions, it's not an exit for people, that people can actually hear what you're saying. Visual exits is another big one. Uh, for me personally, a band, uh, musicians that are not worshiping, that's a bit of a distraction for me. And now, careful here, because I'm not saying people need to perform. But when I look on a stage and I see that musicians' eyes are glued to the chart or their music stand the entire set, it does not elicit trust in me because I'm asking, do they actually know where they're going with this song? Do they know what they're doing? I'm personally scared to close my eyes and engage in worship because I don't want to be that lone voice who belts out the, the something at the wrong time of the song because I'm not, I'm not really confident the band is actually sure where we're going. And so that's one thing. Another visual would be something on the stage uh, or something in the room that's distracting, whether it's movement on screens, uh, whether it's lights or the lack thereof. And hear me, I'm not moralizing any of those things. All of those things can be used and they can be used well within your context. But for me personally, I tend to get distracted by a lot of movement. And so I don't want moving things behind screens. I don't want gobo lights rolling around. I just want to see a simple thing. And so that might be different for your context. You might actually be really into those things. And if you are, I would just say, ask yourself, are we doing these things because they work and because they're enabling our people to engage in worship? Or are we doing them because church XYZ is doing it and that's just what we're doing? So ask yourself the question, what does our context require? So at Trinity, we use a black background and a white font, and we put as many words as possible on the screen. 
Uh, and that part of that is just so the church knows where we're going. They kind of have a heads up with, are we staying in this verse? Or are we going to the chorus? Um, it also creates, um, well, it's less of a chance of a, a slide mess up, which a slide mess up is another visual distraction. When the wrong slide gets put up, when the wrong verse gets put up, that's something that causes people to exit from the worship experience. And the final visual exit that I'll unpack, and this one is very subjective. And so please uh, hear me with all humility in this one. And that's just wardrobe. Like what works for your context? So for me personally, um, I don't like to see hats on worship leaders or baseball caps rather, because usually the bill of the hat hides or creates a shadow on the face of the worship leader. And I love being able to take my cues from the face of the worship leader. Where are they going? What are their eyes doing? Can I see their mouth? Those are things that just personally cause me to exit. Another one would be shorts. I don't like shorts. That's up to you if you want to wear shorts. I try to avoid shorts or things that are too many words on the t-shirts. I just, if I'm looking at a worship team and I see a lot of graphic tees, like I said, I'm easily distracted. So I end up spending the entire worship set trying to read the shirts. And so it's just, again, a personal preference. Uh, and also just ill-fitted or tight clothing or things. Just think of modesty. Think of being um, realistic with your wardrobe. What what does this service, what does this church and this community in context need from me? We're servants first and foremost. So that's what I try to think of when I think about wardrobe. So I'll leave that to you. That one's the real subjective one. We won't say any more about that. Arrangements is another exit for, uh, for the congregation. There'll be those songs where there's a beautiful musical break. And I'm always asking the question during that musical break, do they know what to do? Does the congregation know what's expected of them at this part of the song? Because a lot of times, depending on your context, the solos or little breakdowns that we might do in, in our songs, uh, the people just aren't sure what to do. You'll see that the eyes open up, the hands go down, or the hands stay in the pocket, or they just stare at you blankly. So think about, is this arrangement, is this, we love this part musically, let's, let's stick this in here. Well, is that actually going to help the congregation? That's something that I'm always trying to keep the balance of. Another arrangement distraction is just simply the key of the song. Is the key too high? Is the key too low? There's a lot of songs in modern worship, a lot of great songs in modern worship, and they do this octave jump. So the verses are really, really low. And then by the time you get around to the double chorus after the second verse, you're just jumping up an octave. And so be mindful that a lot of people don't know how to make that jump. A lot of people are struggling just vocally to stay within a melody. So we have a lot of tone-deaf people in our congregations. Not everybody can sing out the way that we can sing out as worship leaders. So we want to make sure our arrangements aren't going to be a distraction for people. Uh, speaking of arrangements, Graham Kendrick has a video on YouTube, and I'll link that into the podcast episode notes. And in it, he says that a lot of modern worship song arrangements in particular seem to leave no room for the voices of the congregation. And so a song feels so complete that the voices are not needed, or at least that's the indirect communication that our congregations think. And so do your musical arrangements leave room for the congregation to sing? One of the things that I like to do personally when leading worship is make sure that three-quarters of the songs have some type of acoustic breakdown 
where I'm starting either a bridge or a chorus and I back off mic. So I'll get it started and then I stand back off mic and I'm still singing very loudly because I'm trying to communicate to the congregation. Your voices are essential to what we're doing here. We might be having a great time on the stage and it might sound amazing, but without your voices, it's just a show. And we're not here to put on a show. We're here to engage with you. You're a part of this. So I try to always bear that in mind. Another thing would be peculiar, peculiar arrangements for uh, the sake of peculiarity. I once changed a 6-8 hymn to 4-4 because I thought it would work really well and go kind of cool with this guitar part I had come up with. That was a terrible mistake. That was a terrible mistake. It was, it was a really cool part for coolness sake. Never went back to doing that version again. And so is this arrangement so different from an original, especially with hymns or well-known modern songs, don't try to overarrange it. People are used to what they've heard or what they've sung over the years. And so when you change it too much, you're going to cause an exit for a lot of people. Another thing would just be your tempo. Just like keys, is the key too high or key too low? Is a tempo too fast or is it too slow? Um, definitely if it's too slow, people are going to disengage from that. And so remember to check, again, your personal preferences at the door and ask the question, how can I service this song so that it will serve the church? My friend Andy Piercy says that a congregation needs to know four simple things about a song. What is the melody? What are the words? When do we begin? And when do we stop? And if we can simplify our arrangements to that, what is the melody? What are the words? When does it start and when does it stop? We're going to go a long way in serving our congregation with our arrangements. And the final exit that I want to talk about is language. And what I mean is insider and outsider language, insider and outsider movements. Years ago, my wife and I were invited to a birthday party at a country bar that had a live country band and line dancing. Fantastic time. We had a great time. But it was obvious from the get-go that all of us city-dwelling people were not from around there. We didn't know the dance moves. We didn't know the songs necessarily. Uh, and there were locals there that could really cut a rug. And they were going to town, and they were gracious enough to go, hey, this is, this is actually how we do it. So we'd watch them, and we'd learn the dance moves. We had a great time. That's fine for a country bar, but in a church service, it's actually quite an isolating thing to experience. The last thing we want to do is marginalize people who are not familiar with our Christian practices or my own church's liturgy. So I always want to pay close attention to that. Uh, if I want to be the kind of church that inspires and draws people into participation within worship, I want to make sure that I'm not using Christianese or inside or outside our language. After all, remember, people are not being formed very well if they're not intentionally participating in the worship that's happening. And one of the things we do at Trinity to serve us to this end is we put 100% of our service order on slides. And so you might use flyers, which is fine. You can do the same thing with flyers. Um, but what we do is we include all of the responses to our readings. So we get through our readings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All of that is up very large on the screen. When it comes to the end of our service, the communion liturgy is spelled out in a bullet point. And anything that is a response, the exchanging of the peace, the mystery of the faith, the Lord's prayer, and even our sending out prayer, all of those are included in their totality 
on the slides because we want our congregation to verbally and physically respond and participate with the worship that's happening. So what are your exits? What are the exits that you might default to within your worship services? Are there actually exits that you're unaware of? We all have blind spots. So I would encourage you to ask trusted people within your leadership and within your worship teams, your volunteers, and just in the congregation who are not volunteering on Sundays, what are some things that distract you from worship that I'm currently doing? It's a thing that requires a lot of humility, but it's something that we have to do as worship leaders if we're going to continue to grow in our craft. The third and final piece of this episode is service preparation. And this one sounds pretty obvious. Of course, you need to prepare for your service. But do we prepare well? Do we do our homework? Do I know the moving parts of our liturgies and our services so well that I can do them blindfolded? That is my goal. That takes time. And so it requires a lot of practice and it requires a lot of grace. We, a long time ago here at Trinity, were doing five services per Sunday. That will learn you quite a bit of your liturgy if you can do it five times a week. So you may not have that opportunity. But if you do, bear in mind that you're living into what Malcolm Gladwell uh, talks about in Outliers. You're living into that 10,000 hours to master something. So it's going to take time. But when it comes to being prepared and setting myself up for success each week, I want to make sure that I do certain things. And a lot of these things are very pragmatic, and you probably already do them, but it's good to sometimes spell these things out because as a young worship leader, no one told me this stuff. I had to figure it out on my own. So the first thing is just print everything. Print everything out the week before. Don't print everything on Sunday morning. Years ago, one of our pastors came in on a Sunday morning to print their sermon that they were supposed to give in probably, I think it was about an hour, 30 minutes or so, but the printer was broken. I don't even remember how they figured. I don't know if they hand wrote it or what, but the printer wasn't working. So if you print the week before and you run into issues, you'll be able to get out ahead of those things. Charge all of your batteries, set up the stage, put up all the charts, do everything that you need to do the week before the service. If you you have table linens, if you have candles, all that stuff, try to get all that stuff taken care of as far out as possible because you want to arrive on a Sunday anxious-free. You want to be a non-anxious presence and you want to be able to focus on the liturgy. You want to be able to focus on leading that liturgy as well as caring for your volunteer teams that are on the stage with you. Everything will eventually go wrong. Not everything. Some things will eventually go wrong. So be prepared when they do go wrong and be a non-anxious presence. And so here at Trinity, things do go wrong. As I said, we had wireless mic drops. We've had in-ear issues. Uh, Things do go wrong. But what we try to do is say, no worries. We're going to move on. And after the service, we'll do what Jim Collins says is an autopsy without blame. And so have those autopsies without blame. We're not looking for a scapegoat. We're not looking to point fingers at anyone. We trust everybody here. We trust everybody's executive and professional judgment. So when things do go wrong, we're just going to remember to be a non-anxious presence. But we're going to do everything we can to prepare and avoid things going wrong just because of neglect or carelessness. Now, one thing that most all of us worship leaders who play guitar, but even when you play piano, this happens too, but we start something in the wrong key, most likely with guitar players because we end up putting the capo in the wrong spot. That happens from time to time. So what I'll do is actually write out on my set list, 
what my capo position is and what the fingering uh, form is. And so you may want to do that as well. This song's in D, but I like to play in the C voicing, and so I'll write capo to C after the key of D. That's just one of the nerdy things that I like to do that hopefully you're doing as well. Now, I will say this, having said all of that, there's been a couple occasions where I've, I've had to stop a song because I forgot to move my capo and stop the band. A little embarrassing in the moment, but we laugh it off. The congregation laughs it off. Sorry, guys, let's try that again. That was a terrible, terrible mistake. And the interesting thing that happened after a couple of these is this congregation began to sing louder. They actually sang out louder. There seemed like there was a little bit more relaxed air in the room. And so sometimes mistakes can be blessings because it just kind of gets us out of the plug and play, I'm going to come to church. It reminded our congregation they're a part of this as well and that this isn't perfectionism. We're not looking to have the perfect worship set for them to observe, but we're actually creating something for them to engage in. Another thing that happened years ago is we had a power outage. And at this point, we had no windows in our sanctuary. And so it was pitch black, uh, except for some emergency lights. And we had just finished rehearsal. The team, we were ready to go. We felt good about the worship set. We thought it was going to be a good time. And I, I turned to the band after about 30 seconds of darkness and no sound system and said, I'll see you guys later. And I unplugged, went to the front of the stage and had to abandon the entire set list. I sang out as loud as I could, and I let the congregation know, hey, we're going to sing songs. If you know the words, sing it out loud. If you don't know the words, um, close your eyes, worship, engage in this as you're able. Which brings me again to preparation. Do you know enough hymns or well-known songs that you can lead without charts? Do you know how to lead them uh, without looking at the words? Do you know what key you do them in? That's another way to prepare for catastrophic event like a power outage. Power stayed out the entire um, first service. And so it's just the way it is. Sometimes we just got to roll with these things. Uh, Another thing with pastoral care, or rather with service prep, is pastoral care. How am I caring for my worship team? I want to make sure that I carve out time for that each week. One of those is simply just looking at the planning center list and saying a prayer for everybody. How are they doing? Are there things that I'm aware of with my worship team that I might need to reach out to them and check in on them. How are they doing with something? How are they doing with a prayer request they've given earlier? One of the things we do on Sundays before our services, well, all of our rehearsals are before services, but we do a pre-service prayer with just the prayer team. It's, it's a short five to 10 minute time where we just ask everybody on the worship team and the sound and video people, is there anything that we can pray for? Let's, let's pain share with one another. Is there something we can celebrate with each other? Let's rejoice. Carving out that space has been a real gift because the teams that love each other, that love will come through in the worship service. And I believe it's that biblical blessing we see in Psalm 133 where it says how wonderful it is when brothers come and dwell in unity that the Lord actually commands a blessing. So how are we caring as worship pastors? How are we caring for our worship teams? Do we take seriously the call to be worship pastors, or have we somehow just sunk back into the default of being song leaders? Well, hopefully we can lean into what it means to be pastors and start by caring for our worship teams. That's one of the key ways of preparing for our worship services. So what does your service prep look like? Where might be God calling you to step it up or to lean in some new ways 
of service preparation. So there you have it. That's episode one, part or episode three, part one, role of a worship leader, building trust, eliminating those exits, and thinking about service prep. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope it has encouraged you to think more deeply about the craft of leading worship. For more information on all things worship or for resources that I've referenced in this episode, please visit us at allthingsworship.org. Be sure to subscribe to us via Spotify or iTunes, as well as give us a review on iTunes podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at at all things worship podcast. Thanks so much. 